Now, if you've been with us recently, you know we've been talking about um, what it means to be a Talmudim. Jesus' invitation to his disciples was to come and follow me or be my Talmudim. And that just means a better translation for us in the English language is an apprentice. And so you've heard that language a lot about what does it mean to be an apprentice of Jesus. And that really means that we order our lives around three habits, three central keys in our life. And those are to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and begin doing what Jesus did. Last week, we spent some time on how we can be with Jesus. We talked about how we can do that with the Holy Spirit and Jesus' example of abiding in the vine. And we introduced the idea of practicing the presence of God. And I encouraged you to pick one and practice this past week. How did that go? Did anybody get a chance? You don't have to raise your hand, but I can tell in your eyes if you, if you tried that or, or didn't. We talked about 10 minutes of silence and solitude. We talked about scripture reading and then the one-minute pause. Anybody have just one minute that you, could, that you could take? Next week, we're going to dig into becoming like Jesus. But today, I just want to tell you a story. And then I want to put a spotlight on one practice that I think has probably been the most meaningful to me and my family. And so, if it feels like I'm preaching today, that is not my intention. It's literally a story and one takeaway. And so if you feel like I'm preaching, then that is, uh, that's from the Holy Spirit. So we'll just chalk that up to him. So I grew up in the family business. And at a very young age, I remember asking for uh, construction-related items for like birthdays and Christmas and things like that. So I would ask for a circular saw or a cordless drill. One year, I asked for a thermos. So this is my thermos. So we were on construction sites, and uh, everybody had a thermos. Um, this was mine. When I got married, my wife thought that this was like worn out and, and broken, so she bought me a new one. But everybody that has been on a construction site, you know this isn't worn out. This is just worn in. Like this is like a friend right here. And you would, uh, you'd, you'd engrave your name. My name's engraved here so that it didn't get mixed up with other, other thermoses on the job site. And uh, the guys that I worked with had a thermos. Um, one guy, you might know him actually, well, he's from this area. I won't say his name. He's passed away. But he was, he was a, an old guy, and I'm pretty sure he put something in his thermos that wasn't coffee. Because he would come in, and, and he would say, Scott, sometimes you just got to growl at it, you know, and he'd take a swig of something. Um, so, and the reason this was significant is because I, I was, I was a, uh, a glazer, so commercial storefronts. If you go into a store and you see that aluminum and the big glass, and the big doors. That's the stuff that I would install. That's what I would fix. And in this, you probably don't even notice this, but in this area, when I walk into a store, I see what kind it is. I know what kind of closure it is. And back in the day, the popular closures and, and systems of the day was called Conair. And you might even see that little stamp on the bottom of a door somewhere. And Conair was famous for trying to make everything streamlined. And so they would conceal these big, heavy closures. So these doors would, would weigh a ton. And these closures up concealed in the jam would operate those, those doors. And they'd, they'd allow it to come closed pretty slow. Well, those would go bad, and they would just slam. And so to replace those, you had to drop the door 
and you had to replace that closure, and there was a concealed pivot in the bottom. So it's not just like a butt hinge where you can kind of zip, 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 pull it out, put everything back on. You got to do some work to get to those. And it never happened that these would break or fall apart when the weather was good, right? It was windy, it was cold, it was icy, combination of salt, and you're just out there and you're just miserable. And this is the other fact too, you, you could have like, a, like an old Walmart or Jack's, if you remember the Jack's store, there'd be like eight doors there. If you're working on one door and you've got that door off, everybody goes to that one door, you know what I'm saying? So you're like, oh, are you serious? So, you know, you're, you're doing a two-hour pivot job. It's cold, it's icy, it's windy, you're miserable, and you've got these little screws and they're stripped out, so you're drilling out these screws, and the last half an hour of this two-hour job, you had to take your gloves off because the screws were so small and you'd have to get those tightened in. And it was just, it, it, was, it was terrible, right? So, to return to the truck and to get hot chocolate or hot coffee, was an absolute treat of the day. Now, fast forward a couple of years, and I have an opportunity to help launch a church campus. And some of you guys know that. And I loved just about everything about that. Um, I loved getting ready for the weekend. It felt like every Sunday was a grand opening. You know, I'm out there pulling weeds. I'm making sure the projector's in focus, making sure the coffee tastes good, the light bulbs you know, aren't, aren't burned out, you know, picking up little pieces of paper. It just felt like every, every Sunday was a grand opening. It, it, was, it was awesome. One of the things that I would do, though, is I would keep that thermos right behind me. So I had my desk, and then I had a couple of chairs, and then I had a bookshelf behind me. So with this job came a lot of hard conversations. And so I just remember having that thermos back there, because as the conversations got difficult, I would just kind of glance back at that and be reminded like, oh, it, this might be hard, but like it's way better than replacing the Conier closure, you know, out in the wind and out in the rain and out in the cold. And I'm just, I would thank God in that moment for a desk job. I'd never, I'd never had one. So one of the things that I really didn't like about that job was that every weekend I would have to run and get like the goldfish for the nursery. I'd have to just get supplies. Uh, Hershey's chocolate for, for the coffee bar, um, bottled water for everybody. And so every, every weekend was the same thing. And I'd wait till Sunday morning. So I'd go Saturday night to the main campus. I'd get this big box that had the message on it. I'd get the box of programs, put that in the back of my Pathfinder, drive to Galesburg. And then first thing Sunday morning, I'd go get these supplies at Walmart. So I got the cart and club soda was another thing that we had to have for the, for the coffee bar. And I remember this one day, I got my cart full of stuff and I go to the back of my Nissan Pathfinder and I lift up that tailgate, and a thousand programs just dumps right out. And it's windy, and I'm watching all these programs just go all over the parking lot. And in that moment, I have these two conflicting thoughts. The first one is, man, I don't want our church to be known for littering. You know what I mean? Like, this is a bad testimony as we get started here. But the second thought is, this could be the greatest advertising technique ever. Like, they're going to be picking up little advertisements for my church for weeks. Well, a few people felt sorry for me, and uh, we picked up every last one of those programs. And then I later explained from our stage why, when you got a program today, there might be a little bit of gravel in that, in that program. So I decided that I would, 
to avoid that, I would just try to start buying some things in bulk, right? So I bought club soda by the pallet from Hy-Vee, and I found out later that expires, so that was a bad, bad decision. We had way more club soda than we could ever, ever use. Um, we bought bottled water from Menards by the pallet. And I remember I grabbed my youth pastor at the time, his name was John, and we jump in our, my uh, 77 Ford pickup and we head to Menards. And, and we go in and you have to pay for it at the cashier and then you take your slip around to the back, they let you in, and this guy on a forklift puts this big thing, pallet of, of bottled water on there. There's probably, I don't know, like 8,000 bottled water. It was just like this leaning tower of Babel in the back of my pickup truck. And we go to pull out and the guy even said, the security guard's like, you might want to tie that down, don't you think? And I'm like, dude, we got this, man. We know what we're doing. We're not going very far. Don't worry about that. So I pull away, and I take that first little curve right when you come out of the Menards parking lot between uh, Menards and Walmart. F&M Bank is there now. There's this little turn. And as we make that slow curve to what is now that F&M Bank, I look in the rearview mirror, and I watch that thing just start to go like this. And I'd say to John, I'm like, there she goes. And the next thing I know, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of bottles of water littered all over the road, like literally less than a football field away from where I dropped all those programs. So I turn the truck around, and I go back, and I park right in the middle of the turning lane, and I tell John, I'm like, hey, this is going to be a great sermon illustration someday, but right now, we just need to chuck these bottles back into the truck as fast as we can. Now, we're in the road, there's traffic going both ways, and this isn't just any traffic, like this is Walmart traffic, you know what I'm talking about? Like, this is Walmart going on here. And just in a state of embarrassment and laughter, we're just chucking, you know, these bottled waters back in the back of the truck. And about halfway through, I decide to get a picture of John, and he takes one of me, because if this is ever going to be a sermon illustration, there's got to be proof, right? So here, here's a picture of me, and this is, like I said, we're about halfway through, <laughs> I'm laughing. It, it is hilarious. There's John. I take a picture of him. And uh, we're just chucking these things back in as fast as we can. And we are almost done. And this white panel van pulls up with two gentlemen. And the driver lowers his window. And he pulls right up next to John and he says, Two, please. <laughs> and John looks at me like, and, I, and I'm just like, Sure, you know, why didn't I think of that? This could have been the next best publicity stunt since dropping a thousand bulletins. So John takes the two water bottles that he has in his hands. He passes them through the window of the van. And I hear the guy say in broken English, thank you, God bless, as he drives away. And we absolutely lose it. It was, it was just so funny. They had no idea what had just happened. It looked like just a generous plan to bless the community with free water. Now, fast forward just a few years ago, and I'm working for the same church, and the only way that I can describe my season of life is that it feels like I am living in this photo. And I know in my spirit that it's not supposed to be like this. It feels like I'm one slow turn away from disaster. I mean, I am busy all the time. I am, I am running all over the countryside. It's when I started praying for this church because my route took me by all of these little rural churches. 
I'm leading other campus pastors, and I'm not really sure I'm really even leading myself well. I'm anxious. I'm discouraged. I'm depleted. My office, I'm not at my office in Peoria very much. They actually give my office to an intern, and I wasn't really using it anyway, but there's something about boxing up your stuff and, and walking past everybody and loading that in your car that just kind of, it feels like a, a target to your value a little bit, and I probably internalized that. I uh, wasn't in a healthy place. And on the outside, I look like I've got it all together. Like, I look like I am a, a passionate, productive, innovative leader. My Instagram and my Facebook, they are projecting this professional image. But behind the facade, there's, there's clutter, there's scheduling chaos, there's strategy confusion. I'm five minutes late to everything. Now, don't raise your hand, but let me just ask you, have you ever been here, like on the inside, clutter, confusion around your purpose, not sure if you're doing what God has called you to do, maybe it's a tough season with the kids, or aging parents, or both. So at this point, I'm unable to even put into words what I'm feeling. I don't even have the vocabulary for it. I'm pretty sure I'm using words with Jenna, things like, you know, this isn't sustainable. We've got we've to pull over, we've got to stop and find a rhythm of rest. And I remember my, my supervisor asking me, um, hey, man, what, what are your goals for this year? How can I be praying for you? And he's super excited. And just in a moment of honesty, I said, you know, my goal for this year is to discover a sustainable rhythm of rest on this journey. And I, re- I can still see his face. He looked disappointed. And I told him, I said, listen, my kids are not eight years of their dad being in professional ministry better kids. It's kind of like they've, they've seen how the sausage is made and they've lost their appetite. And, and I'm starting to do the same. And he said, well, do they resent the church? I said, I don't know. So... That night, I went and asked each of them, like, hey, do you guys resent the church? Like, no, of course not, Dad. We like church. And I've only realized recently that that's that's the wrong question. It's not a bad question, but it's the wrong question. Because our goal as parents and leaders shouldn't be preventing our kids from resenting church. We should be living in a way that our kids naturally fall in love with Jesus because he's saved our lives. Not just for eternity, but like from this, from that photo. So listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 11. You don't have to turn there, just listen to it. These are the words of Jesus. So if you're an apprentice of Jesus, this is what he invites us into. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. The yoke was a rabbi's way of interpreting scripture, his teaching. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. When you listen to those words of Jesus, what child, or adult for that matter, could ever resent But if your life looks like that photo of the bottled water, I mean, what child would want to follow that around? 
So I'm in a tree stand one day, and I'm deer hunting, and I've got a tractor supply. I find a tractor supply receipt in my, in my pocket, and I've got a pencil, and I just start kind of writing down all of the pastors, the people that have had the biggest impact on my life. I just start kind of writing their name, pastors, teachers, coaches, authors, and I wrote each of them a thank you. Just like, hey, thank you. You have no idea how this message or this book or your influence on my life has, has developed me into the man that I am, and just kind of a thank you. And one of them was a pastor named Tim, and he's become a, a good friend of mine since then. He was actually a pastor at the church that I was working for at the time, and he resigned two weeks before I started, and I've, I've never forgiven him for that. But he replied to my note, actually, um, and, he, and we met at Starbucks shortly that, thereafter, and uh, I think he could see something in my heart that, that looked like that photo, because he asked me this question. He said, and I'll never forget this. He said, how is it with your soul? Let me just ask you, how is it with your soul? How does that, how does that question even settle in your, in your spirit? How is it with your soul? And then when we were done with coffee, he asked me to consider this question over the next couple of weeks. What do you sense Jesus inviting you into? And when he asked, how is it with your soul? It, it resonated with me at such a deep level. In my heart, I'm just like, that's it. I have a soul problem. I wasn't physically tired. My soul was depleted. I longed for this rhythm of rest. When I considered what Jesus might be inviting me into, I'm drawn to his words again in this passage. I want to read this again, but I want to read it from the message translation. We're going to put this up on the screen for you. This is, this is Jesus talking. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Be with me. Follow me. Get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Man, doesn't that sound good? Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy on you or ill-fitting on you. Be with me. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Your kids resent the church? Let me just say, if we've got to even ask that question, we're not living in this invitation of Jesus. So Jenna and I were extremely motivated to find a space where we could, we could kind of slow our souls down and pay attention and ask this question. And one of the most important things that Jenna and I discovered that became kind of the tip of the iceberg uh, for living as an apprentice of Jesus was an accurate understanding of the gift of Sabbath. Tim told a story of a, a tribe in Africa that would often send their men on a hunting expedition that would last for several weeks. And after three days of travel, they would always stop for one day. 
And their, their thought, their theory was that they, they could outpace their souls. And so if they stopped for a day, their soul would catch up. And that first weekend of embracing Sabbath, I slept for like 12 hours straight. And when I woke up the next day, I felt like my soul had caught up. See, it's more than just a Sunday afternoon nap and, and checking church attendance off your, your weekend to-do list. And see, something happened between, something happened between the thermos and, and the bottled water, okay? When you're swinging a hammer and you're punching the clock, shutting it down for a day is, is pretty easy pretty easy to do. You understand it because it just kind of feels physically necessary. But for eight years, I didn't observe Sabbath. I really spent six days working, preparing for the seventh day, which was the game day. And I even led my family and my staff and our volunteers into this misunderstanding that the work of the church was so important that a two-hour nap later that day would be enough to be considered obedient to one of the Ten Commandments. And it's not. And I know for the farmers and the teachers and, and professionals, most of us here, that those boundaries are fuzzy for us as well. But we need to remind each other, keeping the Sabbath is one of the Ten Commandments. We would never encourage someone to, to murder or lie or steal, but when somebody works 30 days in a row, we have a tendency in our culture to say, wow, man, look at them. Like, he's a real go-getter. He, you know, she's a hard worker. She's doing what she's got to do to make it. And what they might not be letting on is that they are one wrong turn away from their life looking like that photo. Now, quickly, here's, here's what our family does. We try to do this. So for Sabbath... And again, we're practicing. We're not, I'm not speaking to you from a place of authority or having this all figured out. We, we practice. We try to do this. But what we try to do is we pick one day a week. It doesn't have to be Sunday. One day a week where we just stop. Not, not slow down, but like stop. No work, no email, no grading papers, right? No showings, no listing appointments. We have a Sabbath box that uh, we, we put our cell phones in, the whole family, we try to do that. We put our cell phones in, we close that box, no iPads, no video games. We try to have the grass mowed on Saturday, the house clean the day before. When we're really doing well, we've actually got a meal in the crock pot and paper plates ready to go so there's no dishes when we're really rocking. And we just focus on being together and doing life-giving stuff. Okay? It doesn't mean we just like hole up in our prayer closet and and drown everything out. It's, it's about doing life-giving stuff. And so we'll read a book, we'll play games, we'll take a walk, watch a movie, fellowship with another family, smoke some meat, light a candle, read poetry, write a poem, just one day a week. And when we started implementing this, it was amazing how productive the other six days of the week became. Now, by midweek, our souls would begin to long for this Kind of, and just crave the Sabbath, that, that day, this rhythm of rest. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Try it. <clears throat> it's interesting that while our kids might flinch a little bit at the thought of no technology and no video games, I've actually seen them tell their coaches and their bosses, like, hey, we're not available on Sundays. And they've always been respected for it. 
And I love that. The Israelites were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. They didn't get a day off for 400 years. God delivers them from Egypt, and you know the story of Moses. It's an awesome story. We'll, we'll go through that sometime. And now they're in the desert, and God got the people out of Egypt, but he uses the desert to get Egypt out of them. Moses goes to the mountain, he gets the Ten Commandments, and one of those Ten Commandments is remember the Sabbath, keep it holy, keep it set apart, keep it separate. And the Sabbath becomes a gift that only free people can receive. You hear me? Sabbath is a gift for free people. When I'm tempted to slip back into a culture or a lifestyle that encourages me to forget Sabbath, I remind myself that I'm free. I'm not, I'm not a slave to culture or a lifestyle that would require me to not be able to set one day apart. And I don't know if I've missed like a million dollar deal because I didn't answer my phone on a Sunday. That's possible. I'm going to have the worship team work their way back up here. And as they do, I just, I want to close with this. And maybe you've got this rhythm of rest figured out. Um, you've got it nailed down. Sabbath is no problem for you. Um, you're way ahead of me. And that's, that's awesome. Maybe you're retired and, and every day is Sabbath. And, and that's great. Um, but no matter where you are in your apprenticeship with Jesus, maybe his words in Matthew have kind of struck a chord with your heart. I want to put that verse back up there. Maybe there's something there that, that you've read and it's just kind of resonated with you. And you've said for the first time in your life, like, wait, Jesus, Jesus said that? Jesus, Jesus is inviting me into that? And everything that you've thought about religion or following Jesus has just been opposite of that. It's been rules and, and religion and, and don't do this. And maybe you've read that today and you've said that for the first time. This is the kind of life Jesus offers. I want some of that. Then here's what I would encourage you to do this week. To just sit with the question, Jesus, what are you inviting me into? That's it. And that's, that's the one thing. That's the one thing. As we continue to practice the presence of God, keeping God before our minds, abiding in him, sit with this question, Jesus, what are you inviting me into? And recognize Jesus' posture here is not one of man manipulation or force-feeding. His posture is one of invitation. He's the one asking if you're worn out on religion. Jesus, what are you inviting me into? And let's just see how God answers that question. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the freedom that we have through your son Jesus. And I recognize, too, there might be some here today who have not begun that journey yet. And so if that's you and, and you're here today just with your eyes closed and your heads bowed, I'm just going to ask you, what are you waiting for? Like, that invitation is for you. And if that's a journey that you'd like to begin today, it's, it's really easy. It's admitting that you're a sinner. 
It's believing that Jesus is who he says he is and that he paid for our sins on the cross. He rose again. And then it's simply committing to live for him and confessing him as the Lord of your life. And just in the quietness of your pew right now, if that's you and you want to begin that relationship, you can just pray something like this. God, I admit that I'm a sinner. I have tried to do this life on my own, and it's not working. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. I believe you are who you said you are. And from this day forward, I commit to live for you. I confess Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. So Lord, I just, again, come to you, and if there's anyone here who has prayed that prayer in their heart today, I pray that you would just seal that moment. This would become their spiritual birthday, in a sense, new creation. And I pray that for each of us, you would help us to recognize, to keep you before our minds, to walk with you on this journey and to practice the presence of God. We worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.